0: So allowing attention just to be suffused in the body, and let that be our reference point as David begins to frame and shape what this class is tonight and what this series will be about.
1: I'm going to share with you some thoughts that I put down on paper and then shared with Amatana Santi, and they have her thoughts in them as well. And I'm going to read because it will be more concise as an introduction, framing what we intend to do during the next three days in terms of content, although we'll be more specific. This will be only about ten minutes. Navigating issues that arise in the meditative path. Some key points to keep in mind. The Buddhist path is a path to something, but it's also a path through many things. The latter through part often gets neglected. People seem wanting to get to something. It might be through a jungle, one that is called in the Indian language samsara. There are in the path openings to joy and to peace and to insight. But also there are regularly openings to anguish, fear, loss of mental familiarity, shifts in emotions, ill health manifestations, and more. These are natural for practitioners. While most of us are good at creating and experiencing samsara, that is the cycle of suffering that comes from our greedy, ignorant, and sometimes hateful minds, good at creating and experiencing samsara, we are also expert at repressing our honest recognition of it. We just keep our sights on the goodies, whether that be in a non-spiritual domain or even in the spiritual domain. We seem to be wanting to cling to just good things. As the path opens us to less compulsion and less reactiveness and to more ease and confidence, also other stuff comes up that's not so sweet. And the path necessarily entails working with this stuff as well. Our meditation practice must not be seen as a magical medicine that in itself will cure all our ills. It might even expose more of our ills to us because we're blinded at times. We have to wake up As well as to grow up. It's not just a straight and easy path to peace, this practice. When we think that it is, we are underestimating the obstacles, underestimating the very sources of the suffering from which we are seeking to be free. And therefore, we are also underestimating the profundity of the kinds of freedom that are truly available as fruits of this path. Things we'll discuss in these classes. These sessions aim to help us recognize both the promises and the perils of the path, with they look mostly at perils, but not as nasties to be avoided, but rather as ones often to be unfolded within us, explored and dissolved again and again in the sphere of compassion and direct wisdom. Some basic obstacles for most practitioners include one Overexcitement at signs of transformation that take place, even though they're real. We get overexcited, and this can bring cockiness and complacency, as if maybe we're through with it here. Two, depression, or a kind of loss of energy or faith in one's practice due to a perceived lack of progress, or from a feeling of being stuck in a difficult place. This can happen just as much as the excitement can, but maybe more one or the other depending on the person or the time. Working with both of these responses, that is the excitement and the discouragement, which are natural parts of the practice, require cultivating patience with ourselves and with our world, and developing a long-range view of our aims in order to soften the impact of these immediate and strong responses of overexcitement and of discouragement. We need to learn how to relax, to ease the judgments that arise regarding our own progress, whether those judgments be positive or negative. That doesn't mean we can't judge at all, but we can overjudge. And that we need to relax. While we will likely not go into the following list in details, there is a very traditional and helpful enumeration of what are called five hindrances, or nivarana, They are known as desire, ill will, laziness and boredom, restlessness and remorse, and doubt. Different translators render those a bit differently, but that's standard. Each of these has antidote powers that need to be cultivated again and again until the impact of these hindrances is greatly reduced in frequency and in force. Again, while we won't talk about this list explicitly, some of these items will be coming up in our conversation naturally. We will also discuss ways to work with real traumas that are encountered presently and that have been encountered by us in the past. In some ways, the traditional Asian Buddhist lineages have not offered adequate models for some of the traumas that we Westerners know very intimately. This discrepancy might be due in part to different cultural conceptions and thus different experiences of self and of community and of world that are dependent upon culture. We will note, also, that there are many kinds of Buddhist meditation besides basic mindfulness practice, which many people are introduced to. Combining these different wonderful Buddhist practices brings various very helpful powers into our own practice. Some of these other practices include, besides mindfulness, the four immeasurables of practicing love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. In themselves, each of them exceedingly deep and rich and expansive meditations. Reflection on taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha as a regular reflective practice. Generating bodhicitta, or bodhi mind, which is the wish to become of service to all living beings in this lifetime and the next, so that you can achieve enlightenment for all beings' sake. Visualization practices of a wide variety of sorts. And also devotional practices that are directed towards, for example, especially in the Tibetan and Vajrayana traditions, one's guru, one's lineage, and toward a deity, such as the deity of compassion, Guan Yin, or Chen Rezi, the deity Tara, which we'll be discussing in September here. Each of these kinds of different practices should develop familiarity with a range of practices. Each of us, I'm sorry, should develop familiarity with a range of practices from the veritable smorgasbord of Buddhist contemplations, To practice more than one helps to open and strengthen multiple aspects of our mind and our body and our spirit. This is one way to work with the path, that is, to be diverse in our practice. We would also like to emphasize how important our friends in our path is a good term for it in the Buddhist tradition in Pali, or in Sanskrit Kalyanamitriya often translated as good friends or spiritual friends, people who have as much experience, if not more, than us and who can help advise us, counsel us, guide us in aspects of our practice, sometimes a little bit harshly because we might need that. People who share some of our basic spiritual ideals and with whom we can talk openly in the spirit of mutual support, thus cultivating caring relationships within a sangha is a vital dimension of our practice as well. Lastly, we want to emphasize in our introduction here that there are many other ways to support our practice that can come from non-Buddhist sources. Taking good care of our physical and mental well-being is very important, and it entails work on multiple levels. Caring for the body is very, very important for Buddhists and non-Buddhists alike. Thus, finding helpers and healers who can guide us in identifying and healing our problems is also crucial for our practice things come up in both body and mind that need our attention. This is not a fault, nor should it be considered a distraction, but rather it's a natural outgrowth of our spiritual work and a natural unfolding of our own past karma. Of course, therapists for our mental and our emotional spaces can also be exceedingly helpful. And helpers who work with energy can address matters that are not simply either-or in terms of body and and mind. While there is no clear and simple map for moving forward on our path, it is clear that there is a path to greater insight and greater joy. At least it's clear to some of us who have experienced a bit of growth along this path and who have learned to trust deeply others that we've met who seem to have experienced much more. And this generates faith. It's faith based on awareness and knowledge and experience, not a blind sort of faith, but a trust that there is more opening to take place. But the map is not clear for each of us. And if there is one thing at the end we would like to emphasize as a trustworthy foundation for effective work on issues that arise in one's practice, it is to learn how to pay deeper attention to our body. We feel, for various reasons, that this is something that many Westerners neglect. Our body speaks in various subtle ways and sometimes not so subtle. And we need to learn to listen much more attentively and to develop the skills that can allow us to do so. The body is not silent. It speaks volumes when we look really closely, when we slow down to feel, and when we open to its true condition. It actually helps to point the way. So those are some framing concepts. We'll be talking more pointedly a few moments. So rather than each of us talking to you and taking turns, we've decided we're going to talk to each other. What would you like to start
2: with?
0: I think what I'd like to start with is the, um, I certainly came into meditation with this extraordinary fantasy that meditation was going to be a panacea that was going to sort everything out. You mean many years ago? Yes. So when I was 17, you know, I started meditating and I had this absolute conviction that if I meditated, there was going to be kind of like this magic wand in my life that was going to go loop whoop, And after enough diligence and enough practice and enough of something, everything would be transformed. I wouldn't suffer, and everyone would love me. And that was like a, like a, a very strong motivating factor to why I meditated. Do
1: you Do not have a wand in your back? <laughs> <laughs> did you have that I still do (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean very much so
0: so how does it manifest for you what does it shape like what does it look like
1: it looks like so many many things Um, one way it looks maybe to start at a negative side of it is that it allows me often to ignore many of the things that crop up in practice Mm -hmm. When I'm feeling angry, when I'm feeling lonely, when I'm feeling sad, when I'm noticing habit patterns that are unhealthy, I can sort of leapfrog over them mentally as if they're not really necessary because what I'm after is the candy cane in the sky. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So I think there's this, the magic wand notion that meditation practice can just clean up our crap, allows us to neglect our crap mentally. And for me, that's one of its manifestations. For me, that also comes from a long family history of, not, of avoiding conflict, of avoiding pain, of not looking at the difficulties in life and always looking on the rosy side. And so that's something that I've had to struggle with quite strongly. It also allows me, as a parallel to that, to hold on to the good moments that I have in meditation, the ones that are really peaceful, the ones where I feel the loving kindness strongly, the one where the body rests in a very deep state from many, many years of practice. And I can hold on to that and attach to it as if this is what I'm supposed to be doing, just deepening this good feeling, as if it's a kind of fire that can just melt away all the dross. You know.
0: So there's something that's very, very deep-seated about... That's, I see it, it, you know, elements or traces of it in myself, that there's a, a deep-seated sense that meditation is not about opening up to what is, yeah. but it's about attaining a certain state that has, one has an idea about it, that has pleasant characteristics and nothing negative. Yeah. And this is, um, no matter what people say and no matter what our actual experience is, it's almost as if there's this deep-seated longing that that's what we really want. Yeah. We want to be in a place where we can experience peace and happiness and a sense of security by not having to feel the things that we don't want yeah. to feel.
1: I'm getting this image of a football player, the fullback. He's given the football, and he's running from his own 20-yard line towards the other end zone to make the touchdown, and he has to just push everyone else out of the way right. to get there.
2: Right.
1: Right. And yeah. th- th- that's kind of like what sometimes I, I still feel when I'm following my own feelings. Right what actually I'm still trying to do sometimes.
0: Right. So for me, it was a radical shift when I decided, or I I came to a process of recognition, that this movement to try and get out of suffering was actually causing more suffering. Mm -hmm. And what was needed was a a, a redirection in, to meet what was arising. And for me, coincidentally or not, it happened around taking the Bodhisattva vows. When I took the Bodhisattva vows with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, there was a radical transformation in my practice from wanting to move out of suffering to the willingness to be present with the suffering as it was arising. Mm. And a willingness to be able to meet these layers that I had suppressed. So it was sobering, deeply sobering for me to realize that after many, many years, like twenty years of meditation, there were accesses of my own conscious that I didn't have I didn't have access to. There were layers that were under lock and key that I didn't have the access to. And I needed different ways to invite to welcome. I needed a sense of safety that I never experienced before. I needed to shift focus from something that was conceptual to something that was very intuitive and body-based that would then allow an emergence of then all of this material, which had a huge impact on the way that I experienced myself and the relationship with the world. Mm. But David, what's interesting to me is uh, what is it, where was it for you, or how is it for you Mm. that it shifts from this, like this football, you know? get out of my way to this willingness to say this is the practice. Yeah, yeah. Where, where, What shifts that?
1: I'll tell a small story like you did because I think for me it was a turning point in my life mm-hmm. that came maybe eight years ago or so when I was struggling very heavily with my first and only marriage and struggling with my pain in it particularly difficulty with my partner. And I wanted to get out, but I felt very selfish about wanting to get out. Still had two kids, this and that, this and that, have to be a good husband, a good father, stay in it. And long story short, during a long time and we were apart, I re-engaged in my meditation practice that I've been doing only partly for several years because I was finishing grad school and trying to get a good job and getting my kids into high schools and things like that. So an intermittent practice became more stable and one of the things I focused on was what was I feeling? What did I really want? Because I kept going back and forth in terms of the pros and the cons of leaving the marriage and I kind of dropped the writing list of goods and bads and went into my body to ask myself, what do you need? that was a question that I think as I grew up, I never really was asked to ask myself. I never felt to ask myself. I was kind of a codependent type that took care of other people's needs, and those were my needs. And I was good at it. But when I asked myself, what do I need? I found I was in deep pain. I was sad. I was angry. I was lonely. And my body was writhing in ways I wasn't aware in anguish. And I realized I had to come in touch with that more deeply. And I couldn't no longer push it away. It wasn't a matter of writing lists of what was good or what was bad about staying or leaving a marriage. I had to feel, what am I needing here? As opposed to feeling that following my own needs was selfish. I learned to see that following my needs, none of which were harmful, was actually a true and good path. And so I started meditating on my own pain in a way that I had never been able to do before. And my body was the door or the window.
0: Completely. And so, for you, part of what I'm hearing you say is it was a, it was a passage through quite a lot of suffering that required you to refocus your attention in order to then attend to what was happening.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, however, not a mere passage through, as if I got through in a year and then I was on the other side. I'm right. still working on it eight years later, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But I had to begin the passage through right. and to right. deal with some. Some serious I mean demons if that's the right word, some serious sources of suffering and pain within me.
2: Right.
1: And that was really, really helpful. It was an incredible revelation for me. Right. Oh, this can be practice. Yes. As opposed to just smiling in samadhi. Right. You know? Right, right. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. So one of the things that was really telling for me when I was um, made this shift was the sense of welcome and safety and also the sense of being tethered to my own goodness. Three things. Welcome, safety, and being tethered to my own goodness. So the welcome was the sense of where I was situated was actually very inviting, very welcoming to me. You know, I was in a place in the bush, so I have a strong sense of connection. With in the Australia? Country. Yeah. And I felt like the land was rejoicing that I was there. You know, sometimes the way you get hugs when you come into a a warm group of people. Well, I felt like the land and the creatures and the rocks and the trees were doing that by the fact that I was there. So there was something for me about welcome that created the safety for me to then begin to explore. But it was also very strongly connected to being tethered to my own goodness. Because as I was opening up these layers of fear and anger and self-hatred, which I had no idea existed. Like, I had no access to. The only way it was possible to open to that was to have a vast kind of resource of other. You know? Mm -hmm. To know that I was actually tethered to something that was wholesome and good. The years of practice had borne the fruit of me seeing the sense of self-respect and the self-worth that I had. So rather than to use that to avoid this other stuff, I use this as like a safety harness to enter the other stuff. And so when I would start like um, absorbing into it, losing context, then I would pull back into the safety harness of the, the, the. My own goodness. When you say absorbing into it, you refer to the natural world? No. No. Something? When I was absorbing into anger or, or okay. self hatred, when I was absorbing into the mucky stuff that needed exploring, yes. i pull myself back and let myself rest in something that was wholesome. And so I learned that in order to allow this unfolding to happen, it's like we need a safety harness. And the safety harness has got to be that we are tethered to our own goodness and we have a way of pulling ourselves out of stuff when it's like we we free fall into a crevasse, we need a way of getting out, Mm. you know? And I could not access this material until I had the safety, I had the welcome, and I had the safety harness.
1: Were there moments when you didn't trust resting in your own goodness as if you might have felt that you were just projecting the sense of goodness out of an egoistic fantasy?
0: I didn't experience that. Not in those situations, but I certainly have had long processes where I didn't have access to my own goodness. I didn't know what it was. I had no idea. You know, I had a bright smile on my face, and underneath it was like huge layers of pain and fear and confusion and self-doubt and self-hatred. I didn't know that what was actually driving this bright smile was the fear of looking at all the opposite stuff that was underneath it you know and so it waited until the conditions were right in order for all of these things to come together to be able to do that work and I was living in Australia and I was living in the bush and I was in a cave you know So it was very um, elemental, you know, the hot, the cold, the wet, the leeches, the rain, the mosquitoes, the walking, the smells, it was very um, tactile and helped me stay focused in my body.
1: Do you think related to this that there are ways in which sometimes, I, I can't speak for the Asian traditions in this context, but the way that Buddhism gets presented in the West, in terms of being a path to freedom from suffering, that that term, right, focused on the first noble truth and the third noble truth, freedom from suffering, sometimes frames in people's mind just the sense that this is all about getting away from it, not by diving into it.
0: Well, I I, I mean it's even more than that. I mean, I, in particularly in the Theravada tradition, there's a lot of emphasis on getting out of suffering, getting off the wheel, mm-hmm. you know. And so the languaging and the way that it is kind of uh, described has an, has an impact on the way that we experience things. But I think part of it is, I think part of it goes back to the magic wand. I think there is such a deep-seated primary longing for safety that it takes a lot of experience to recognize that the safety that we, are, we actually get to is by entering into the very territory that we are so desperately trying to avoid. That's where our safety comes from. Not through running, but through facing and entering and exploring and allowing and unfolding the stuff that is so much what we don't want to feel.
1: Well, I think when you use the expression running, it seems to me that can both be a running away from, but for many of us it's also, as I mentioned, a running towards something. We feel like we're running towards some heavenly, some blissful, some peaceful place, right? So there's a running away, but there's also a sense in which we expect safety to be a holding on to. Yes. Right? Yeah. We're going to get this goodness and We're going to hold it. It's going to be eternal bliss. Right. I'm going to always be confident. Right. No one's ever going to ruffle my feathers or push my buttons. Yeah. I'm never going to be angry again. I'm never going to be scared again, right. and I'm going to hold that permanently, right? right? right. If I just meditate more,
0: right. right? So, but I also think that your other point about the cultural differences is huge, and you know, I'm not an anthropologist or a psychotherapist. I haven't done any of those trainings, but what I sense, my senses, is, is is that at least 50 or 100 years ago in Asia. I think now probably there's much more fracturing in the way that we experience it here, here in the West, but 50 or 100 years ago, people came from a very strongly embedded sense of a family, a clan, a village, a, 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 a trade, and their sense of themselves was based on their, their relational field, not their individual capacity. So who they took themselves to be was based on either their family or their village or their clan or their status or their caste or their trade or all of that. It wasn't based on their own individual experience and sense of themselves having to forge their self through the world. And in the West, because we are coming from such an, uh, a highly developed individualistic sense of self, and because the, the village has, has fractured and the nuclear family has fallen apart, then most of the people who are coming to meditation are coming with a fractured sense of belonging. Okay, So the Eastern model, which was very strong in supporting uh, solitude and silence and pulling away from group contexts, in the West is a disaster because it reinforces our fracturing rather than it gives us the fabric that allows us to heal. Okay? So what happened in the monastery in England was eventually, after many, many years, there was the understanding that we don't throw out the silence and the solitude, but we don't use it as an excuse to avoid learning how to relate with each other and finding a way that we can develop the safety within the sense of community so that we could hold what was arising with each other. And as the community was able to do that, the depth of what people were able to navigate in their practice changed enormously. Because we were resting in a field that held us and understood the value of that work. And so the Sangha in the West is not just a good idea. It's like absolutely the central, pivotal point of the whole path.
1: We talked about this, you and I, yesterday.
0: Yeah.
1: And how many people find value in sanghas in America, for example. I don't right. know about other countries in the West. And how that the awareness of that power has only recently dawned upon me. you know. And In response to what you said, it seems to me that there are a variety of ways in which, as Westerners, we misconstrue an understanding of who we are and who, let's say, Asian people are. right? There can, there's a longstanding discourse that they're communalists. Not necessarily communists, but communalists, they live together, they lack individuality, they lack what we find core to our Western values, democracy based on individual rights. Right? They stomp on individual rights in favor of community, we raise individual rights up high and sometimes stomp on community, maybe we go to an excess and so do they, but there can be this way of triumphalizing Western values that diminishes what's actually happening and is missing what's happening on both sides. And if we want to look at the opposite of that Western triumphalism, it's exactly what you're saying, that in certain healthy Asian contexts, not in all contexts, and by the way, I would say in some ways, I know your experience is Asian, but it's not just Asian, it's non-modern cultures, I think, Mm -hmm. right? Non-developed cultures that are not under deep political oppression, that have adequate food and healthy environments, they tend to have a stronger bonding. Right? I mean, the Confucian ideal and the Buddhist ideal is about this. Mm-hmm. And the individual is recognized, as you say, there as someone that's part of a network. Mm-hmm. And there is an individual, but it's not an individual that's entirely separate. Mm-hmm. The individuality is nurtured by and wedded to, and strengthened by and receives blessings from its embeddedness, mm-hmm. right? But it's still an individual, mm-hmm. and the individual is honored. And the Buddha, bless his brilliant mind, found a way in his state to create a Sangha where people could come and seek the pursuit of individual liberty and happiness. And he had to negotiate with kings in the various lands in which he lived because people there were subject to draft and taxes. An able-bodied man had to contribute to the community in a certain way and the Buddha had to negotiate with various kings to say, hey, if you really care about your citizens, shouldn't you allow some of them to pursue their own happiness and not to commit to the military and not to have to pay taxes? Because they're individuals and they deserve that right to pursue their own happiness. So we see way back there, two thousand six hundred years ago in India, you know, a model for pursuit of individual happiness within a community. Right? But sometimes in the West I think we twist this up. We think that real individual happiness is about separating from community. And we get as you say, very, very fractured. And so I think many of us bring to our Buddhist practice a notion that this is all about me, it's all about me doing more retreats, it's all about me doing more meditation, it's all about me figuring this stuff out primarily, as we discussed earlier, in my mind, neglecting body and neglecting the larger embodiment of community and how it, it nurtures us. Right. So I think your point is really well taken as well. Yeah.
0: And I think also, because the community has edges to it that are very challenging, when we are looking at Meditation as the magic wand model. You know, what our experience is is to move away from everything which is conflictory in order to have peace. And so rather than understand the challenges that arise in community as another um, place to grow and to grow up and to develop the skill to meet what is arising, we tend to move away from that, contract from that, or... Push out the people who are the, um, the scapegoats who are receiving, you know, the ones who are causing the problem as a way to, to, to get back to the magic wand model that meditation is about a state of happiness that we are not a, in, affected by anything that disturbs that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, what is needed fundamentally is to recognize that the magic wand model does not serve that we need, we need to recognize that the, that the grit of what our lives are about, our, the pain of our hearts, the, the challenges that we actually are experiencing, is the place where we learn how to open our hearts and to find a sense of safety that is not a conditioned safety based on things being the way we want them to be.
1: Naturally, there's a kind of paradox there, and a kind of tension, I think, that entails a kind of letting go of expectations, as you say, the letting go of wanting conditions to be good, conducive to happiness in relationships, in the body, in politics. Letting go of expecting that the world can figure its situation such that we find happiness. And yet... That letting go is not a dis- doesn't have to be a disengagement. It's a letting go of a kind of compulsion of mind that insists that things be a certain way. But that letting go is not a renunciation that disengages us from relationship, disengages us from the body politic. So I think there's a kind of, I don't want to say a contradiction, but a tension here between learning how to let go, on the one hand, and then learning how also to more deeply engage. Right. And, and those two can seem to be in tension with one another. Right. right.
0: You see, it's letting go of aversion rather than letting go of contact. Precisely. Yeah.
1: And so what you said earlier I yeah. m- brought a really clear image in my mind how some of us, I think, in meditation encounter places of peace, encounter places of stillness. And we can, for example, get up from meditation and even five minutes later, if not that later that afternoon, meet someone who gives us trouble. I remember early in my marriage, it happened. I had one of the most remarkable visualization meditations I'd ever had. I was about 26 years old. An hour long. And my then wife came home from work into the apartment. I was glowing. She saw it. She was like, what have you been doing? I said, meditating. She said, hmm, I can tell. And then she got into a little fit about something. And I responded totally aloofly, totally from this place of radiant bliss, <laughs> as if her fit was not worthy of my attention. And she blew up. And I realized I was a bad boy. Mm -hmm. I didn't take her seriously. Maybe she was being immature, but I was being much more immature. Coming from this place of, oh, it's all bliss. What are you concerned about, you know? And what you said to me sort of brought that back in terms of what we're doing in our practice. Sometimes we we can encounter some freedom and bliss, either from reading that that's what we're supposed to get or by experiencing some in our actual sitting and then disregard what situations bring to us.
0: So that Would that sense, be politics or individual friends? That whole sense of, you know, I'm supposed to be focusing on my breath, so I'm going to ignore my loneliness, I'm going to ignore my pain, I'm yeah, going yeah, to yeah. ignore my heartache, I'm going to ignore my body, I'm going to ignore everything, because what I'm supposed to be focusing on is my breath. So we use the meditation instruction as a way of, of not attending to what is present, right. rather than as a, as, a, as a grounding place to give us the strength to attend to what is present. Exactly. And so what is needed is to reshape, reframe our understanding about what meditation is.
1: Well, as you probably know well, there are certain Mahayana critiques in the Buddhist tradition of what they call Hinayana, right? One of the ways it's framed is precisely of that attitude, right? The way it's framed wrongly is that there's a whole tradition or lineage of people that have that attitude. I think that's a complete Mahayana mistake. That people in a certain geographic tradition that belong to a certain lineage have that attitude. But I think it is correct to pinpoint that as a Buddhist problem.
2: Right.
1: That is that people seek their peace of mind right? just in the way you said it and don't want anything else to disturb it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And that that's the goal. right? Mm-hmm. To escape from the troubles around us, right? And that escape model is what some of the early Mahayana texts pinpointed and some of the current Mahayana teachers pinpoint as a problem with a certain orientation towards Buddhist practice. And it is a problem with an orientation towards Buddhist practice that manifests everywhere there's Buddhists, right? As, as you know, I think there's a, a mistaken blanket pro, a projection onto Southeast Asian Theravadan traditions of a so-called Hinayana attitude that is really quite absurd and some Mahayanas still maintain it, sadly. That aside, I think what's coming out there is a Buddhist recognition that Buddhists can somehow take the Buddha's message and his practices to try to escape all by myself, to get in my own little like the, the meditation cushion. Here is my little um, how did the Dalai Lama put it once. It's like a foundation for the rocket ship, which is the power of my samadhi, and the power of my samadhi is going to launch me out of this world to some blissful land. You know, and anything that gets in my way is to be. Pushed aside, and, and and that mentality can come to us sometimes, can't it? I mean, I, I find I, I still struggle with it in s- much subtler ways than before. I think.
0: So I I was goodness. I was um, at a teaching of a, a Lama Lina, who's um, she's a Dzogchen teacher. She lives in India. She's American born, speaks English and Tibetan fluently. And one of the things that she said that really struck home with me is, is that there's different practice models, and each of them are effective in their own context. And so what she was talking about was in the sutta tradition, this idea of, of, of concentration and meditation and silence and all the rest of that has its own particular ethos that it works. You know, you can actually develop um, quite a lot of concentration, the concentration supports clear seeing and the insight allows a, an opening of the heart and mind to be able to uproot uh, the fetters, okay? My own personal path is, is is that I'm interested in integrating the insights that I have into the wholeness of what I experience as a human being. And so it's not that I think that that path of, of separating out and doing it that way is not a right path, it's not my path. Mm. Okay, and what she was saying is, is she she's just in like a minute. She delineated four or five different paths, each of them having their own validity. Okay, but what I'm interested in is not having insights that are disconnected from different parts of my life, because I can see that you can have profound insights and still not being able to navigate issues around. Um, relationship, or um, stuff around power, or things around, I mean, there's all kinds of things that can come up even when there are profound, transformative, liberating insights, okay? So I don't want to say that all other paths aren't working. I'm just wanting to say that the way I feel the strongest resonance is a path that is inclusive and integrative so that as a human being, there's the widest bandwidth of intelligence that gets cultivated, not a narrow band, you know? I'm not highly specialized in concentration and wisdom and can't cope with, you know, normal day-to-day relationships or function or the psychological sophistication of what is needed in 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 our current situation. You know, what I came from, the kind of challenges that that brought, and the enormous richness that comes from opening that up. So I guess for me, you know, the, the, the blessings of looking at the magic wand and dissolving it is is that all these nasty, horrible, terrible things become this phenomenally rich compost for heart opening, clarity, understanding, wisdom and compassion for myself and for everybody that I encounter.
1: I'm gonna play the, well devil's advocate is too strong a term here, but pick up on a couple of things you say and uh, ask for your response. I, I think some who didn't listen carefully to what you just said could think that you're suggesting that therefore Rigorous meditation practice that explores deeper states of mind and helps disentangle subtler levels from mind of mind from attachments is not that important. What's important is actually just to work within the world. And two, that therefore a goal keeping in mind some kind of goal of liberation or enlightenment is not that important. What's important is just trying to aim <coughs> for creating a wholesome community. And I don't think You're intending that way. I'm not. So I would like you to reinforce, if you could, two things. That is, one, in the model that you presented of a very engaged practice, one, the importance of rigorous practice, and two, the importance of maintaining in mind some kind of a sense of uh, uh, an aim of ultimate freedom for human beings.
0: So let me go back to the model that um, was actually fairly effective in the monastery, because that's the place where I felt this was most uh, illuminated. And everybody in the monastery had times of being on intensive, solitary, silent retreat. And everybody in the monastery had times of being engaged in the community and holding the duties and teaching and taking out the trash and doing the chores and all of that stuff. So the combination of the two meant that we had times for our practice to go deep. And as our practice would go deep, we would be able to come into a different relationship with how we were working with the stuff that we were dealing with in the daily interactive world. But the interactive world then fleshed out our meditation practice so that when we did go into silence, we were coming to it from a place of a different sense of belonging in a field of community which also totally supported us going deep. So it was the community that held us in our silence and meditation. And the meditation then supported us to be in community, okay? Now, for myself, I've gone back and forth with this idea of goal because the idea of goal also has been this kind of driving force of get the hell out of here. True. Sure. And get the hell out of here is not the slightest bit interested in being present with what is. It's just get me out of here. So when I was focused on goal for ages, that's what my response was, is get me out of here. But when I take that goal from the perspective of when I meet what is present completely, then that is the way that I realize that goal. The sense of self dissolves as a separate experience isolated from the world. And with that separate sense dissolving, the isolation, the pain, the loneliness also softens and falls away. And so the irony is, or the paradox is, is is that when we let go of the goal in order to completely be present with the suffering that's arising in the present moment, then we realize the goal. And yet, it's not a kind of abstract thing. It's very clear, you know, that there is the end of suffering that one can experience and know as an embodied thing, not as a concept, you know, that it actually is something that we can know and feel and live.
1: Can you distinguish then, just for the sake of clarity, what you just said from a kind of easy-thinking complacency, which would be, there's no need for practice, we just... Be with each woman. In other words, we don't really need to work on ourselves. We just need to be.
0: So one of the things which is challenging for me, because I've spent already 30-something years in meditation practice, is, is is that my mind has the tendency towards depth. And I forget that there's lots of people who's, who are not conditioned that way. They haven't had that practice or that training, or they haven't had that kind of rigor, that holds them in a, in, a, in a framework that is not a complacency, but a relaxed willingness to meet things in a deep way. Yeah? And so I sometimes lack the languaging how to convey the urgency with this incredible sense of relaxedness. Because the urgency has come from the years of practice and also the amount of suffering that I have experienced myself and observed in others. And seen how much of it is because of the way I have framed and fabricated what was going on. Not
1: that... Lack of language, which is, it's more than just words and concepts, it's also an ability to fully understand how the other being is. Yes. Right. Do you remember the time you and I were walking in your neighborhood, and I was taking a look at that house? Yeah. We were looking at a house in our neighborhood, because I was shopping for a house, and the house was empty, and there was a place where the roof in the back went down to the ground, and I walked around there because there was an open gate and climbed onto the roof in order to see a certain part of the house. And there was a woman in the neighborhood who saw that, and she came racing after us in her BMW and scolded us, and scolded me. But she also was not very content with our demeanor, as if we were a little bit too carefree. Do you remember that? Yes. And we talked about that afterwards, yeah. about how there was a there was a lack of meeting there. Yeah. Right? Her intention and our intention just didn't quite meet. Right. And these are complex things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah? So it sounds like what you're pointing to here is related to my earlier point about um, practice not being... Something that's just in isolation.
2: No.
1: You know? And so I think that there are there's some tensions here. Some of us might see practice as an opposition between individual and community. Right? And that is, it's all about me. It's not about community. My practice is something I do alone. And then when I work or when I'm in relationship with my loved ones or whatever, you know, that's not practice. That's something other than practice. Right. Right, and I think layered on top of that, there can be kind of a parallel struggle, which is a tension, the tension between freedom and suffering. Right, that my my life is about trying to reach freedom, and suffering is an obstacle. It's not at all an entryway to freedom. Right, right, and these two seem in opposition: freedom and suffering, and individual and community. But in fact, I think the kind of model of practice that you're talking about and that we're trying to address here is one that embraces both sides of those polarities. But you
0: see, I think that has to do with understanding things from right view. Because when we figure ourselves as a separate entity, then we are going to be in a dynamic tension between self and community. And when when we figure practice as the attainment of freedom and the elimination of suffering, And we're going to be in a dynamic tension between these two. But when we recognize that when we are present with the desire for things to be different than the way they are,
1: and we allow that desire
0: and let it be known and watch it release, precisely, exactly, exactly where the suffering is, is where we experience the freedom. So the freedom doesn't come by getting rid of the suffering. The freedom comes from realizing the end of grasping that is causing the suffering. And so the paradox falls apart. And as that paradox falls apart, our sense of being separate and in community, that paradox also begins to fall apart where we can embrace the individual nature of our experience and recognize that we are in a matrix that is arising with the whole vast conditions of everything that is around us, including the people, the land, the creatures, the air, the water, the smoke, the fires, the politics. Who we are is not separate from all of that. And yet, within that, we can find a strength that is not dependent on all of that it's extraordinary paradox i think you put it beautifully you know but that's what practice for me is about mm-hmm. and so one of the things that i was really interested in exploring further was some of these interactive practice models like insight dialogue mm-hmm. where you're actually bringing the qualities of meditation into the process of communication itself where the other person is part of your meditation practice not just somebody that you're talking to because of their presence between your meditation sessions right (laughs) right right, you know and it's tremendously powerful because it totally breaks down the sense of meditation as being separate you know and the people who you are in insight dialogue with are part of your practice they're not like you're just a group of people going through a retreat together that you have a good feeling about you know And so I think what is needed now in our contemporary world is ways in which we can both support the depth that happens in stillness and silence, but begin to bring those qualities of mind that get cultivated in that into our interactions so that our sense of community begins to have more capacity, more depth, more embeddedness, that we can relax into that and allow that to support us in our practice.
1: Okay. I'll just summarize it in a nutshell. Your, your your description of the way that the paradox is dissolved, you know, about letting go there and dissolving the wish that things be other than they are so that one lets go of the grasp and in that melting away is the freedom from suffering right there. Mm-hmm. That it seems to me much of our practice, if not all of it, is about learning how to let go of that grasping at subtler and subtler, and sometimes coarser and coarser levels, like a ping-pong ball bouncing back and forth. You know, we just, we keep encountering, as the onion peels, more and more layers where we're holding on to something. Right? Yeah. So, So, we're going to shift, but our next step is to have a